0: Sweet Jesus, thank you that we can come into your presence in prayer. Thank you that we can worship you together for the beautiful messages we've heard throughout the course of this week. My soul has been just filled and warmed, and I just pray that you would do us the favor of blessing us again today. I can't do what needs to be done, and I'm asking you to tell your side of the story this morning. And so I pray that you would show us your glory as Moses prayed and that none of us would leave here empty. And I ask this now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So we, at times, can have a tendency to misunderstand the... Way in which God operates. Sometimes we kind of have this bankrupt view of God the Father as opposed to Jesus because Jesus, we can see what He did and we can appreciate that, but then we have these things that God expects and we have these things about the wrath of God and how do we handle that? How do we work through it? And, um, we can struggle at times. And so what I'd like to do actually today is deal with the topic of the Old Testament God. And what we're going to be reading are a lot of verses of just God Himself speaking giving his side of the story in the midst of the great controversy. Uh, Maybe the question that could come to mind is, does God care or does God hurt when I hurt? You ever wondered that? Can he understand what I'm going through? Does God ever hurt when I hurt? And we're going to walk through what God's individual emotional experience is in the context of the great controversy. So we're told in Ezekiel chapter 18, if you turn with me there, we're going to have a Bible study this morning. Are you okay with that? Amen. Turns me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, and verse 23. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23. Again, God himself speaking here. He says, "...do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live?" And skip a few chapters over to Ezekiel 33 Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11 Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11 He says, "Say to them, as I live," says the Lord God, which is from everlasting to everlasting, "I have how much pleasure. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God has no desire for his people to go through this suffering and the second death. He doesn't want that for you. And this is one of the reasons why he won't leave you alone. This is one of the reasons why we're perpetually convicted when we're doing things we ought not to be doing. Because he doesn't want this end result for you. Notice he doesn't delight when someone has to be exterminated at the end of time. He's hoping for any other option but that. That's kind of why he sent Jesus, right? We're told in 2 Peter 3, 9 that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is not what God wants for his people. And he's pleading with us, don't pursue this course. Please choose something different. So God does not rejoice over the death of anyone. Because, I mean, just think about it, guys. No one creates something out of love and then takes enjoyment in destroying it. Right? That just doesn't happen. So, what I'd like to now go into is Isaiah chapter 5. There's this powerful, powerful allegory that God uses, this illustration. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 5, and beginning in verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a, very, has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, he cleared out its stones, and he planted it with what type of vine? The choicest vine, the best you can find, with the most potential. And he built a tower in its midst, and he made a wine press in it. So he expected it, obviously, to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth what type of grape? Wild grapes. This is actually a poisonous fruit. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, does it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, its means of protection, and it shall be burned. And break down its wall, another means of protection, and it shall be trampled down. When we choose to rebel against the things that God gave us for good, right? He's removing all the hindrances. Every one of the reforms, by the way, that we have in our movement are God doing this. Getting stones out of the ground, removing the thorns, getting rid of the stuff that would hinder our connection with Jesus. Were you aware of that? Every one of the reforms in the Seventh-day Adventist Church are all about a relationship with Jesus and having an enhancement in our relationship with Jesus. That's the whole point. It's not to control you. It's not to deprive you of things that make you happy, right? Some people have this view of Ellen White that she's just like this crusty old lady who just doesn't want people to have fun. But that's not the case at all. Like, she has the most gorgeous picture of Jesus. In fact, whenever she passed away, people in the neighborhood referred to her as this lady who talked so lovingly about Jesus. Do your neighbors think that about you? And yet we have the audacity to think that she's just someone who just doesn't want us to have fun. We're not really all, all hip on what she has to say. But the point of all these reforms is to remove the hindrances so that we can grow to our full potential. This is what God intended for us. But whenever we refuse to do that, right? He does everything for our full maturation and then we turn into a poisonous crop. What ends up happening? We lose our means of protection. Notice, God isn't taking action against us necessarily. He's removing his means of protection because we're asking him to leave. When we choose the things of this world and the pleasures of this this life over where God is leading us, we're basically telling him, thanks but no thanks. I'm not interested. Keep moving to the next door. And when he has to step back and honor our wishes, we lose our means of protection. And he's going to ask us at the end of time, what more could I have done for you? Look at all these things that I've been doing to prepare the way for you to thrive, to succeed, to have an enjoyable experience, a fruitful experience. But you were not willing. Now, some would say God could stop it from happening, right? Should just manhandle these people or something. So God should stop this from happening. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and in verses 15 to 17. What more could I have done? Why don't you just stop all these bad things from happening to people? Why don't you do something about it? Well, Genesis chapter 2, beginning of verse 15, this is where it all went down, where it all started. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree, notice this is very inclusive language, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, I will kill you. Is that what the text says? No, no, no. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. There's consequences. Are you hearing me? In the day you eat of it, there's consequences. So God here tells Adam and Eve before before any form of fall happens that these are the parameters that are for your betterment and for your good. And if you violate these, something's going to happen that isn't in your best interest. And it's because I love you and don't want you to suffer. I'm not willing that any should perish. I have no delight in the death of the wicked that I'm telling you these things. Well, what happens? Oh, you've never read it? What happens? What do these people do? Even though God gives them a warning, what do Adam and Eve do? Yeah, they eat of the fruit. You had me worried there for a moment. Am I at the wrong conference? Should I head down the street somewhere? (laughs) It's Sunday, you're tired, I'm with you. So they take the fruit, right? They, they do what they should not have done. But the question is, is this God's fault? What, what responsibility does God play in this? Like, he literally told them what would happen. So is God to be blamed because he warned them and they didn't respond? No, 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 no. This is not God's problem. You can see God saying the very thing that he does in Isaiah chapter 5. What more could I have done? Like, it's not like you weren't aware of the hazard. I told you all about it. But you decided to pursue something different. And there's consequences. We see this again in Genesis chapter 4. Go with me to Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, "'I've acquired a man from the Lord.' "'Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. "'Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain a tiller of the ground.' And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it or you should have mastery over it. Well, what ends up happening? He ends up killing his brother. Guys, just think about this with me. God knows that Cain is very strongly tempted to act out and to to lash out and to kill his own brother. And God condescends, he shows up to planet earth and has a hostage negotiation with this man. We're asking the question, why doesn't God do something about all this evil in the world? He tried with Adam and Eve, and in Genesis chapter 4 he shows up and says, Look man, I know what's going through your mind, and it's not going to go well for you. And sin lies at the door, but there's something that can happen. You don't have to do this, right? But you can have mastery over it. God actually believed in Cain. And God was hoping that by speaking belief into Cain, that Cain would want what God wanted. That he would live the experience that God wanted for him, right? He would believe the things about him that God believed. Did he? No. Now, is this God's fault? Who says that God even has to do this? For goodness sakes, people. He literally comes to planet Earth to reason with the guy. And yet he chooses to make the wrong choice. You know, I've heard it said that I'm not going to go down without a fight. You ever heard somebody say that? In this situation, I would phrase it this way God is not going to let you go down without a fight. He's going down swinging. And he literally shows up to talk this guy out of it. You can't have victory over sin, there is a chance for you. He wouldn't listen, he wouldn't respond. God literally has afforded a voice of reason throughout salvation history. Again, we're responding to the question, why doesn't God do something about this? He has. But God cannot violate the parameters of the will. He cannot cross the threshold of the human will. He can educate you. He can invite you. He can woo you and draw you. But the choice remains yours. And we see this in Revelation 13 and Revelation 14. Right? Satan's means of religion is coercion, manipulation, and force. What God does in Revelation 14 is gives you a beautiful picture of his character, the everlasting gospel. He warns you of what's going to happen if we make the wrong decision, the consequences of those decisions, and he invites us into an experience. But your will is perfectly intact at every stage of that. He cannot violate that. The very core principle of love is freedom, right? The ability to choose. So he's given us a voice of reason throughout salvation history. We saw it in Genesis 2 and 4. Then he gave us Moses and the patriarchs, right? Writing the oracles of God to better understand how God operates, how he dealt with the patriarchs. We see it again through the prophets. Thus saith the Lord, right? People that were spokespersons for God to give a voice of reason to the nation so they wouldn't make the wrong decisions. But then, because they kept rebelling against the prophets of God, right? They killed them. We're told in Hebrews 11, some of them they saw it in too. And so we're told by Joseph, as a first-century Jewish historian, that the Holy Spirit ceased out of Israel for 400 years. In the intertestamental period, basically from Malachi to Matthew, Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, that general time frame, until John the Baptist, there were no prophets. No one speaking on behalf of God. No thus saith the Lord is available to the people in current running time. They had the oracles, but they weren't responding. But then we have John the Baptist who calls the nation to repentance and is preparing the way for the Messiah, right? Clearing the path, kind of like Isaiah 5. Then we have Jesus himself, the perfect example of what right living looks like. He brought clarification to the law because the Jews had almost made an idol out of the law and the ceremonies and they would missed the whole point. If you just read through Desire of Ages and you read through the Gospels through the lens of Jesus continually being frustrated by the fact that the religious organization of his day kept missing the whole point of it all. You think that in these you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. The whole point of these things was to point you to your need of me and what I'm coming to do for you. So Jesus himself, I've heard it phrased, that he was the Ten Commandments on sandals, right? The perfect example of what man was meant to be, another voice of reason for humanity... And then the Holy Spirit, Jesus promises in John chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit is coming to do for you and in you what you cannot do for yourself. John 16, he says, he's going to convict the world, that's not just religious people, of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, a voice of reason. Then we have Revelation 14 and Revelation 18, the three angels' messages, and a repetition of the third angels' message in Revelation 18. God has literally given a voice of reason to humanity from stem to stern, from even before the fall of man until the second coming of Jesus. This has always been available to us. God in his great love for you provided a voice of reason. Not a means of oppressive restriction. It's a means of redemptive information and invitation. This is what God gave this to us for. So why doesn't God do something about it? He has. This is available to us. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the oracles of God, and the examples of the failures of the past. Now, who says that God has to go through all this effort? What mandate does God have to do that? I mean, really. There isn't one, but this shows how much God wants you to be saved. This is why He won't leave. This is why He keeps showing up in those moments when you're tempted The woman at the well, her means of escape from the reality of her life was her water pot. That's how she got away from all the problems she had in her life. She went to this well when nobody else was there to just get away from her problems. But it's just like Jesus to show up at our wells when we're looking to escape. And you know what the text says? She leaves her water pot with Jesus. What's your water pot? What is it that you're running to that you just don't want to let go of and deal with The beautiful thing is, even when we're running to these things that we know we ought not to be doing, it talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe, where he says that, you know, with the temptation, God makes a means of escape. I'm sure you can relate to me that every time that I've fallen in big areas in recent years, ever since my conversion, really, there's always this fork in the road before I make that decision. You know what I'm talking about? You're getting ready to do X, and God says, there's another way. You could go this way. And when I choose to go the wrong way, is that God's fault? Mm-mm. No, that voice of reason is speaking to my heart and to my mind. That's Jesus coming to my well. Saying. And what he told the woman literally was that what I, have com- what I have is far better than what you're coming here for. What I have to offer you is far better than what you're coming here for. And this is continually the experience of humanity. God is trying to awaken us to this. But not only does God give us a voice of reason, He's also promised to give us power to live a holy life. Amen? Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Chad touched on this earlier this week, and I told him, good on you. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning of verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. Bad religion was being propagated by Israel, and the surrounding nations wanted nothing to do with God as a result of it. And all the na- and I will sanctify my great name, verse 23, which has been profaned among the nations wherever you have went. And all the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God of verse 23. How? When I'm hallowed in you before their eyes. These surrounding pagan nations will know that I alone am God when you look like me. And right now, you don't. So how is it that God's going to bring this about? He begins to explain that in verse 24. For I'll take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. We're a filthy mess at this stage. And I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, all the things that you're running to to escape from God right now, to escape from your responsibility and accountability to God. He says, I'll cleanse you from that. Verse 26, I'll give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Maybe you're cold and indifferent to the things of God and the people around you. I'll give you the ability to feel again. I'll put my spirit within you, verse 27. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Amen. That's a promise. God literally has promised, through the means of his Holy Spirit, to radically transform our life. When day by day, when we're convicted in those fork in the road decisions, the Spirit is wooing us, saying, choose this way. And every time we make that right choice, and we realize that we didn't die by not pursuing the things that were killing us before, we realize, no, this is a better way. I actually am not filled with shame and guilt like I used to be. And you begin, over time, wanting to do the things that please God, not only because they please God, but because your life gets better, you're you're lighter of heart, right? Your life just improves dramatically as a result of this. But in verse 28, then you'll dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. We don't feel like that could be the case when we're sinning, do we? We don't feel like God's people. And I'll deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I'll gather the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I'll multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. And then you'll remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight. Remember, the goodness of God leads to repentance. When you see all of what God is willing to do for you, in spite of what you've done to Him, it causes us to loathe ourselves, right? It causes us to repent. This is a beautiful promise. Ezekiel 36 continues by saying that, you know, I'm going to rebuild the barren wastelands, which is what our lives feel like. And then he says, I will let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. And he says, I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. It doesn't matter if your life is a desolate wasteland. It's just brokenness and a hot mess. God has promised that he can rebuild it. And not only will he rebuild it, but the surrounding nations will recognize that something is different, and they're all going to be coming in, he says. That's the promise of Ezekiel 36, but it seems too good to be true. How could God possibly do that for me? I've gone too far. I'm too much of a mess. I'm dead. I have no potential for life. And He knows that we're prone to doubt. So, you know what the very next thing is in Scripture? The dry bones. And He says, Son of man, can these bones live? Uh, you know. And then He begins to tell the story of what happens when the Spirit of God gets a hold of people. Now, dry bones are completely lifeless and without potential. And it says that they were very dry. Not only does bone come upon bone and flesh upon flesh, but it says that there was no breath in them when he begins to prophesy. And he says, prophesy to the breath, son of man. And when the Spirit of God comes into this lifeless form, stuff happens, y'all. This is what God is looking for in this movement. This is what Revelation 18 will look like. People being raised from the dead spiritually and doing a mighty, mighty work to finish this. There were no separations of chapters and verses or numbers of chapters and verses when this was originally written. So the very next contextual thing is the dry bones. You think 36 is too good to be true? Watch this. And he literally closes it. Look what he says here in verse 30, uh, 11. 37 verse 11, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Some may be thinking that's not really applying to this. It's just an allegory. He literally says, this is talking about people, the people who don't get it right, broken, ugly, dirty people. These bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. You ever felt like that? Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. I will place you in your own land and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. Atheism is not an option when the power of God comes into your experience unbelief is gone, if he could do that if he could raise this filthy carcass from the dead, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that there's a God in heaven who's real, who can transform lives and people around you knew that you were a mess they'll see it too and they want what you got this is what the closing work is meant to look like, but again, who says God has to do any of this he could just put a sign on the wall that said warning, no lifeguard on duty, swim at your own risk ten commandments are on the wall if you make it, great, if you don't that's on you pal But yet God is tenaciously pursuing he doesn't want to let you go. Not only does he send Jesus to die for your sin, he sends the Holy Spirit to give you victory over sin because he wants you in heaven. Jesus says that I desire that they might be with me where I am. Did you know that? Jesus prayed for you and he told the Father, I want them here. And this is what all the Godhead is willing to do for you. But will we respond So Ezekiel 36, God's extravagant provision and his amazing desire to see you saved. You're dirty, I'll cleanse you. You got idols, I can get rid of them. You have a stony heart, I'll give you a new one. You're cold and indifferent, I'll help you feel again. You can't obey, I'll empower you to obey. So the question is, you got any more objections? There's not much more that God can do here, right? Apart from crossing the threshold of your will, which he's never going to do. I'm left with the impression that God kind of likes you and stuff. I don't know about you. Amen. My boy Isaiah up here. The people who are lost at the end of time are not lost because God did not make ample provision. They're not lost because God didn't do enough. That's not the issue. They're lost because they had no desire to take God up on his amazing offer. Many of us are shaming ourselves out of heaven we're not being disqualified by God we're disqualifying ourselves and you know why? because there's someone referred to as the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12 we'd rather believe a lie than accept the truth that we might be saved as it says in 2 Thessalonians my computer's freaking out many will be lost by not taking hold of God's belief in them and this is 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10 they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved Even though God is speaking truth into your experience, we just say, no, that that doesn't count for me. Those promises are amazing, don't get me wrong, and they're gorgeous. And they apply to you, but those certainly couldn't apply to me. Our hope is cut off like the dry bones. But that's not how God views you. And he's wanting us to believe the truth as it is in Jesus. This is God's chief desire for us. So go to Jeremiah chapter 5. Again, we're looking at God's experience in the midst of the great controversy, Him telling His side of the story. Jeremiah chapter 5, and beginning of verse 20. Jeremiah 5 and verse 20. "'Declare this in the house of Jacob, and proclaim it in Judah, saying, "'Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, "'who have eyes and see not, who have ears and hear not. "'Do you not fear me, says the Lord? "'Will you not tremble at my presence, "'whose place the sand is the bound of the sea?' by perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it, and though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail, though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a rebel, a defiant and rebellious heart. They revolted and departed. They do not now say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain, both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Notice, he's not withholding good from you. You're separating yourself from the source of the blessing. And he seems to be implying here that nature should give us ample evidence on why we should be worshiping God and giving ourselves to him. That should be ample evidence enough. And David Platt in his book, uh, Radical, Taking Back Your Faith in the American Dream, picks up on this. He says, we spurn our creator's authority over us. God beckons to storm clouds and they come. He tells the wind to blow and the rain to fall, and they obey immediately. He speaks to the mountains, you go there, and he says to the seas, you stop here, and they do it. Everything in all creation responds in obedience to the Creator until we get to you and me. We have the audacity to look God in the face and say no, even after all he's done for us. Go to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, voices of reason. Go down to verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Not asking for a lot, folks. What I'm asking isn't unreasonable. So when God is in this situation, he's just wrestling and have you ever been in a situation where you're having a conversation with somebody and you're just going nowhere? You might as well be talking to a can of Play-Doh, right? There's just no reciprocation. They don't get it. They're just on another planet. And then a third party shows up and you just kind of look to them and say, are you, are you seeing this? Are, are you seeing this nonsense? Yeah, God just did that with nature. You obey me. You listen to me. Would you at least have some sympathy for me? Because these people aren't budging. They're not moving. God is looking for someone to sympathize with them. But Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning of verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I don't want your rest. Also I have set a watchman over you, saying, Listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not listen. Voices of warning, remember. Voices of reason. Verse 18. Therefore hear you nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth. Behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people. And what does that calamity look like? The fruit of their thoughts. I turn them over to the consequences of their decisions. Because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose comes uh, to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifice is sweet to me. If you're just doing religious deeds to get God to like you, I don't care, he says. Because I want you. I want your heart. If you're just doing stuff to appease an angry God, you've missed the entire point. God is wanting you to respond, and he wants your whole heart. Amen? This is what God is asking. This is what He's seeking. In Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel chapter 8, in verse 6, Ezekiel's being shown the abominations in the temple. He says, Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary? Now turn again and you will see greater abominations. The sin of God's people literally caused him to get kicked out of his own house. God is made homeless by the sins of his people. He can't live an own house, and he can't live in our hearts. The two places that God wants to dwell. Exodus chapter 25, and verse 8. Let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And in John chapter 14, Jesus makes the promise to the disciples that if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will send you another helper, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because they neither see him nor know him, but you know him. Why? For he dwells with you and will be in you you. The two places that God wants to dwell, he can't. He's literally made homeless by the iniquities of his people, by the rebellion of his people. But the climax of God's Old Testament pleas for his people, the Old Testament God's pleas for his people, is found in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. We've been seeing the pleading of a fatherly love every step of the way throughout the Old Testament, God himself speaking then we get to this passage, and I believe this was alluded to earlier, but Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to an impenitent city, and we're told in Matthew twenty three, thirty seven, he says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, that voice of reason that I sent to them, and stones those who were sent to her, again those I sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus weeps over a city that refused to believe the things about them that God believed. Who rejected the voice of reason that God provided throughout salvation history. He weeps. Not just for what is, but for what could have been. The faith of Jesus is saddened because this is not what I wanted for you. This is not what I had in store for you. And I'm going to have to turn you over to your decisions. He doesn't want to leave, but they forced him to. All right, I'd like to begin landing the airplane here. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. In verse 2, again, God himself speaking I've stretched out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Just imagine, there's parents in this room, but imagine that all of you are parents, and you have a child who you love with everything within you, but they continue to make self-destructive choices. Remember, God cannot cross the threshold of the will. He's trying to woo us to Him, and He's telling Him, Son, you're killing yourself. Stop it and they're holding a bottle of pills, they're holding a firearm, whatever the situation may be, and you're pleading with them, please, stop it. Come home. Only to have to watch them take their own life right before your very eyes. God deals with this regularly. Daily. When people refuse the pleadings of His Spirit, when people refuse his, his appeals and his attempts to bring them home. Offering them something better, they say, we don't want your rest. We don't want your warnings. Leave me alone. Again, we're looking at God's heart and God's experience in the midst of great controversy. And what I've come to find in my studies is that if, there, if there's anybody who hurts in the great controversy the most, it's him. By By far. We plead with God asking why bad things happen. You know what the ironic thing is? He's asking the same question Why won't you come to me? These bad things are happening because you're rejecting me. He's asking the same question, but just in a different way. Why would you reject my grace and be turned over to the consequences of sin? We're not the only one who's asking these questions. All throughout the Old Testament, we've seen God pursuing his people at the expense of his own heart, at the expense of his own embarrassment, trying to win them over. And heartbroken heartbroken and devastated, he continues nonetheless. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, beginning at verse 14. (sighs) To be honest with you, all this was just filler. The whole point of the sermon was this verse, but it was helpful. All right, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14. But Zion said, the people of God said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Are you kidding me? Have you been listening to what we've been hearing about the Old Testament God this whole time, right? And they have the audacity to say that the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. You know what God's response is? Just that, are you kidding me? He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Who's forsaking who? God is not the one who's doing it and he's using explicit Calvary language here. He's not writing your name with a sharpie on his hand that can come off and sweat. He's using the clearest, most powerful language possible. It's Calvary language. Your name is inscribed upon the palms of my hands. I don't want to lose you. I've paid the full price for you. I've made a way for you to have overcoming sin in your experience. I've made all of this for you. Why would you reject this? Why would you turn from this, he says? If anything shows us that God has not forgotten us, it's Calvary. If there's anything that can tell us that, and if there's any guarantee that Jesus is coming again, it's Calvary. Someone doesn't pay that high of a price and leave it in the store. Jesus is coming soon, and he's coming for you as his bride, amen? He's not sneaking up and coming to get you. He wants a bride He's in love with you. You're the love of his life, and he's coming soon for you, but do you want that? Do you really want that, or do you want this instead of him? How could you say something like that about me, especially after all I've done to bring you back to me, in spite of how you've hurt me? But then we see this beautiful invitation in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Familiar verse. Our evangelists use this many times, and for good reason. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Speaking to a church that lost their way, by the way, a church that's fallen asleep, they've lost sight of where they came from, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. And this does sound nice. This does sound pleasant, but the problem is many times we lose sight of what's actually there in the original language. It's in the continuative in the Greek. I have been knocking, I am knocking now, and I'm going to keep knocking. This is why God won't leave. Because you're on the inside and He's not. He wants in. This is why God won't leave. I have been knocking. I am knocking now. And I have no desire to not knock. But there is going to come a day whenever God's going to have to let you have the last word. But He's hoping it doesn't come to that. I haven't been able to find a picture, but I've been told that there's a picture of Jesus knocking on a door similar to this But it looks like a modern home, and there's no handle on the door on the outside. And there's cobwebs in the door jamb. You can tell that this door has not been opened for a long time. And just imagine, if this verse is true in its tense, that it's past, present, and future, or it's in the continuative, just imagine what the neighbors are thinking. This sad-looking man is standing here, knocking on a door, day after day after day after day, Look, man, there's obviously nobody home. And if they are, they certainly don't want to see you. You're wasting your time. And if you look in the face of Jesus, I bet you're going to see two things. One, heartbreak. Grief. Devastation. But I think you're also going to see this this little glimpse of, maybe they just can't hear me. Maybe they're not ready yet. Maybe if I just keep knocking, they're going to respond. He won't leave. Some of us right now are hearing him knock. And we're wrestling. Because we assume that he comes in, he's going to raid my pantry, he's going to raid my closet and make my life miserable. But when you find the love of your life, nothing, and I repeat, nothing, is more important than Him. And if I got to choose that or Him, I know what I'm choosing. Say this. Repeat this after me. Jesus is the love of my life. Jesus is the love of my life. Do you believe that this morning? Is that actually true? Is He a historical figure who did some nice things for you and whoever once in a while stirs your heart? Or is He a living, breathing Savior to you? Is He altogether lovely? Is He altogether fair? Is that how you see Jesus? That's how He sees you? Amen, brother. Jesus can reason with us. He can communicate and show us a better way, but the choice remains ours. He only works through love, and love has to allow for choice. So my question is, what will you do with the pleading of Jesus? Will you let Him in? Scripture is clear. God is not giving up on you. But he will have to eventually yield to you giving up on yourself. When you refuse to let him in, he's going to have to yield. And this is what breaks God's heart. This is what brings him to tears. This is why he wept over Jerusalem and why he will weep for some of us if we're not wooed to the point that we wish. That he wishes. So the Old Testament... Picture in the New Testament all show the same story. God looks just like Jesus. He loves you. He's been pursuing you. He's making a fool of himself to win you. And having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. So does God care? More than you'll ever know. Does God hurt when I hurt? You better believe it. And he hurts when I don't hurt. And he hurts all the time in the great controversy. And this is why he won't leave. And this is why he keeps pleading with the lost as long as he can. Because there are people that God created to be with him for eternity and who chose another way. And he has to spend his experience without them. There's an empty table. An empty seat at the table. That unfulfilled potential brings grief to God. This is what we're told in that very context from the book Education. Those who think of the result of hastening or hindering the gospel think of it in relation to themselves and to the world. But few think of its relation to who? To God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony. But that suffering did not begin or end in his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception, sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. When there came upon Israel the calamities that were the sure result of separation from God, subjugation by their enemies, cruelty and death, it is said that his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel, and in all of their affliction he was afflicted. And he buried them, buried them and carried them all the days of old. I think this is amazing. Even when he has to turn us over to our decisions, he's not crossed in his arms and saying, I told you so. Should have listened to me. Even then, he grieves. He hurts for us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why should you die, O house of Israel? Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why should you die? This is why God won't leave. And this is the response that God has When we tell him no, it brings grief to him. But beloved, we have to see his side of the story before we say no. We have to tell people God's side of the story. Many people are saying no because they don't know his side of the story. That's what you're here for. That's what we're all here for. Tell them his side of the story. Then they now have grounds to make an intelligent choice. But most people have not had an intelligent choice presented before them. Many times we've failed. We've come up to them and we've said, God expects X of you. And the response, many times, is like that of Pharaoh Who's God that I should care? What if they came to know that God cares? Then maybe they would. If we continue to resist the pursuit and pleading of God, what's going to happen? He's going to hurt for eternity. So our experience in being lost in the second death is actually easier than God's experience. And you know why? Because it actually ends. We eventually cease to exist. God doesn't have that option. He has to continue to miss these people. It doesn't go away. Parents can vouch for this. That's the image of God in you that can vouch for this. He has to continue to live with that pain. So the appeal for salvation is not just an appeal to put an end to your pain. It's an appeal to put an end to his. What are you going to decide today? Will you make a decision today to put an end to God's pain? To put an end to the madness, the heartbreak, and the grief that is terrorizing our Father in heaven. Will you make that choice today? I don't know you. I don't know your story. I don't know where you're going in life. But I do know that Jesus is indeed the love of your life. He's everything that you've been looking for, and you're everything that he's been looking for. And if you want to put an end to God's pain today, I want to invite you to stand and join me in praying. Oh, God, we're sorry. Lord Jesus, forgive us for causing fresh pain to you. Not just what happened at Calvary, which was our fault, but Lord, even now, when we choose fill-in-the-blank sin over you, when we chose an education instead of the call of God in our life, when we chose vocation instead of the call of God in our life, when we chose work over our family, God, whatever the situation may be, when we've caused grief to you, we recognize what harm it's causing to you, not just to us. We don't value ourselves. That's why we keep doing it. We think we deserve to be destroyed. We don't value ourselves. But Lord, I hope and pray that we would value you. You didn't do anything wrong. You've only done right. And yet we're still hurting you and we're sorry. So God, I pray that you would forgive our sins today that you would cover them with the blood of Jesus. I pray that the spirit of the life of Christ Jesus would come into our hearts and minds and that you would set us free, that you would keep the promise of Ezekiel 36 and 37, that you would raise us from the dead, that you would transform our lives, and that we would be a people who reflect the character of God to the world, that the glory of God would be known to the nations so that we can put an end to your pain and bring these people home. You're waiting on a bride, and Lord, we've had cold feet for too long. We've been a runaway bride for too long. And I pray that today that would change, that we would fall head over heels in love with a man named Jesus, and that we would find ourselves today saying, I do. I recommit myself to you today, Jesus, and I'm praying that you would save me from myself, my sinful, unchristlike, selfish self. Set us free, I pray, and I ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.